Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I will now introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Treatment Update on Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And this is part one of Living with Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And today's program is supported by Pharmaceuticals LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this two-part series and for many of the programs that we do. And I also want to acknowledge that we have over 251 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban communities. And we also have um, some international participants as well from Brazil, Canada, Germany, Oman, Pakistan, and the UK. So it's really wonderful that we have um, many people both from the United States and internationally. It kind of brings a whole other sense to the program as well and a lot of interest in it. Um, now, before, we introduce, before I introduce our first speaker, I'm going to ask you a few questions um, just to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. Um, and so I'm going to ask, start with the first question. And um, it's on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Please select your rating. I understand the important role of testing and informing treatment choices for mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand treatment choices for newly diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I understand treatment choices for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma including CAR T-cell therapy. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I I know emerging treatment approaches for mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the importance of clinical trials for mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one, the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. I really want to thank all of you for participating in, this, uh, in these questions. It really helps us in planning programs going forward. So I, I really want to thank you for this. Um, it will make the programs better and, and uh, more reflective of what you need. 
And so now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program, Associate Professor of Medicine, while Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will be addressing an overview of mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, important role of testing and informing your treatment choices, and treatment options for the newly diagnosed. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation to be here uh, on this call today, and thanks to everyone for joining us. Uh, the first uh, question that Dr. Messner asked me to discuss is the overview of mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, and I think there will be more time to address this in the Q&A session, but I think one of the key topics that I just wanted to briefly touch on is the role of vaccinations in mantle cell or for COVID-19 right now. Um, mantle cell lymphoma um, is, a, is a cancer of the immune system and many of the treatments for mantle cell lymphoma also impact the immune system. Based on that, we're learning or in the process of learning, several groups around the country and indeed internationally are evaluating the impact of lymphoma and lymphoma-directed therapies on response to the vaccine. Currently, uh, I think the recommendation that I think many of us have is that when possible, it's ideal to start all vaccinations and complete, indeed complete the COVID-19 vaccination before initiation of treatment for mantle cell lymphoma. In many cases with mantle cell lymphoma, we have the opportunity to uh, defer initial therapy sometimes for long periods of time, but often for at least several weeks to even a few months. And uh, I think it's a good idea whenever we meet somebody with a new diagnosis of lymphoma to ensure that they have an opportunity to do their COVID-19 vaccines, but also I encourage them to ensure they've had their flu vaccines, pneumonia vaccines, for example, and even sometimes consider the shingles vaccine. There, there may be more opportunities to discuss uh, COVID-19 vaccines in the, in the setting of um, lymphoma that has come back after prior therapy, and we can defer that for later on. Next, I'll talk a little bit about uh, testing in mantle cell lymphoma. In order to understand the role of testing of mantle cell lymphoma, I think it's helpful to understand a little bit about the biology of mantle cell lymphoma. We, um, in fact, we just had a, a big meeting about mantle cell lymphoma just uh, last week. And it's clear that our understanding of mental cell lymphoma is evolving at a, at a very rapid pace, which is great because that's going to have key downstream effects. But it is clear that we know at least two key factors are involved in mental cell lymphoma. One is the uh, loss of control of the cell cycle. Mental cell lymphoma has a key genetic defect that results in cells dividing a little bit more rapidly than they might otherwise divide, number one. Number two, uh, cells uh, with mantle cell lymphoma often will accumulate additional genetic mutations at a rate that's a little bit more rapid than other kinds of cells uh, in the body. Those two factors uh, present two key challenges with mantle cell lymphoma. When we meet somebody with mantle cell lymphoma, we always like to confirm, number one, is this really mantle cell lymphoma? It can often 
masquerade as other kinds of lymphomas, and indeed other kinds of lymphomas can sometimes masquerade as mantle cell lymphoma. So we have expert hematopathologists that review the diagnosis with us. But then number two, we always want to discuss with those pathologists, are these cells growing and dividing at a more rapid rate than usual? And that can be evaluated really in two ways. One is uh, you can look at the cells under the microscope, and if they're bigger than usual, we call them uh, blastoid or pleomorphic mantle cell lymphoma. Fortunately, that's not very common at the time of initial diagnosis, maybe 10, 15 percent. Uh, we also look at a factor called Ki67 or Ki67, and that's a marker of the proportion of lymphoma cells that are actively dividing. And uh, in general, the higher that number, the more uh, rapidly they're growing or the more cells are actively growing. And then we also try to get an evaluation of how well the cells are coping with DNA mutation or DNA damage. Probably the best test we have currently available for that is to look for mutations in a gene called PP53. There are other surrogate tests that we have uh, that evaluate that roughly, but the best test is TP53 uh, mutation status. And we like to have all of those tests done for reasons that will become uh, apparent uh, and that I'll discuss shortly and that others may discuss as well. When we talk about treatment of newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma, I think one of the first questions that I alluded to is, number one, does somebody actually need treatment? Several of us are around the world have uh, recognized that not everybody does necessarily need treatment at the time of diagnosis. But most people will at some point in time uh, require treatment because either there's enough lymphoma that has accumulated that it's causing issues or is at risk of causing issues, or it's growing at a rate that we can expect that it's going to cause issues in the near future. So once we decide to initiate therapy, Historically, really, that's fallen into two sort of options. One, more intensive therapies for younger, fitter patients, and less intensive, uh, primarily chemotherapy uh, treatments for older uh, or less fit patients. The younger uh, or the, the more intensive treatment options uh, historically are based around a chemotherapy drug called cytarabine and often include uh, a high-dose chemotherapy, often referred to as autologous stem cell transplant. Really, it's just a fancy way of giving high-dose chemotherapy. And all of those are combined when, with an immunotherapy drug called rituximab. And in general, the more rituximab, uh, the better. There's often a, a maintenance phase that goes on for a few years. The less intensive treatment option really, again, is a chemotherapy drug called bendamustine, again, combined with uh, rituximab. Historically, really, treatments for mental cell lymphoma have been dichotomized into those two options. And for the vast majority of people with mental cell lymphoma, those options really are appropriate and are likely to remain appropriate for a long period of time. But I wanted to just take this opportunity to highlight that there are um, going to be changes probably in mental cell lymphoma that will come, you know, over the next several years. The changes that we may witness may come from 
our understanding of the lymphoma biology, as well as the evolution of new uh, treatments that have already been approved and now are being moved into the frontline setting. So one scenario um, where we may see new treatments move into the frontline setting are in those group of patients that we might consider for uh, observation or watch and wait. This may be a population where non-chemotherapy-based treatments could be used very appropriately and for short periods of time potentially to control the lymphoma and potentially defer or even potentially abrogate the need for uh, chemotherapy down the road. Another scenario where uh, we're likely to see uh, changes in the near future are in those older, frailer patients who may not be candidates for intensive chemotherapy. We're learning that some of the newer drugs for mental cell lymphoma may be um, active and could be used instead of chemotherapy in some patients. There are ongoing randomized clinical trials comparing non-chemotherapy to chemotherapy approaches, uh, initially um, targeting probably those older or uh, patients less, less likely to tolerate uh, intensive chemotherapy. And then the last group where we're likely to see changes really are in those patients where we see uh, multiple high-risk factors. So, for example, uh, lymphomas that are uh, proliferating or, or dividing at a high rate or where there are um, multiple issues related to, uh, issues related to TP53 and accumulation of genetic mutations. We know that chemotherapy, unfortunately, even intensive chemotherapy doesn't always work in that population. And so there are multiple efforts uh, trying to evaluate newer therapies in that population uh, of patients. So it, it is going to become increasingly relevant that not only do we diagnose mental cell lymphoma, but that we also understand those biological factors like proliferation and, and DNA mutation rate or TP53 mutation so that we can uh, better design uh, or better select treatment regimens that are appropriate based on the information that we have. The good news is that this is all in evolution, and every year uh, we get a little bit better at that. Dr. Uh, Shadman and Dr. Haberman are going to discuss some of those uh, newer treatments that were that are already approved in the relapse and refractory setting, and so I won't uh, go into too much detail about what, how they're being used in the frontline setting, but know that all of the treatments that they're discussing are being evaluated in the frontline setting, and we can address some of those questions in the Q&A period. Uh, so that's it for me, and now I'll uh, pass the mic to uh, Dr. Shadman. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was excellent and just really set the, really, the context for today's program beautifully, so thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Nasir Shadman. And Dr. Shadman is Associate Professor of Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Associate Professor of Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington, and attending physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Shadman will be addressing the importance of testing and determining treatment options, including CAR T-cell therapy, treatment options for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, and talking with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments, 
It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chapman. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join this uh, great program today and talk about some of the very exciting treatment options for, for mental cell lymphoma. And the task that I'm given is mainly talk talk about the relapse setting, and this is when we have uh, a patient whose disease has come back after the initial treatment that Dr. Martin summarized nicely. Um, I would say in the past few years, we have really uh, seen a significant change and many advancements in, in, in the field of basically lymphoma in general and for mantle cell lymphoma specifically. And I think the key maybe take-home message from this short uh, kind of uh, conversation that we're having today is that with, with so many different types of options, it's it's really important to have a very good understanding and starting a conversation with your lymphoma physician about the options and kind of come up with the right sequence of treatments and the timing of really thinking about utilizing each each treatment option. So uh, we kind of have moved from having mainly just chemotherapy and maybe chemoimmunotherapy, adding uh, monoclonal antibodies to chemotherapy from that to having access to some of the newer targeted drugs. And, uh, you know, for example, my colleagues on this panel actually played a major role in development of drug uh, called lenalidomide, which is um, a very important treatment option. And uh, more recently, we also have access to a new class of uh, drugs that basically called BTK inhibitors, and these these drugs uh, target a very important enzyme that's critical for the survival of cancer cells and lymphoma cells. And we now have access to drugs that can go and target that enzyme, and by doing that, basically stop the survival of cancer cell, which is a good thing for, for the patient. And mental cell lymphoma happens to be the only disease for which we have uh, uh, three FDA-approved uh, BTK inhibitors in the U.S., and starting from ibrutinib, which was the first-generation drug in that family, and now having two drugs that belong to the second generation, calabrutinib and zanabrutinib, which basically target the same enzyme, and, maybe, uh, and, and they do have a more uh, direct and kind of a cleaner activity against BTK enzyme without affecting uh, the, the the enzymes that are not supposed to be targeted. And by, by doing that, we do see still uh, a very good safety, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I apologize, we still see a very good effectiveness and efficacy from these second generation drugs, but also they come with a much better safety profile. So, uh, so that these are targeted drugs for mental cell lymphoma. So, uh, in addition to chemotherapy, would be a second family. And more recently, we we now have uh, a treatment modality available for our mental cell patients, and that's uh, using the cellular immunotherapy, namely CAR T cell therapy. And we now have a, a drug or a product approved for mental cell lymphoma, which is uh, a CAR T product called. Uh, Bruxocaptogen atolacil, and uh, you know, as you can uh, imagine, it takes a lot of practice to uh, mention the, uh, say the name, even even for us. But basically, what it is, it's really taking advantage of patients' own immune cells, namely T cells, 
and in a way to train those T cells and teach them how to attack cancer cells. So if you think about the immune system and T cells, they, their main job being attacking and protecting us against infections, and they do a great job. And um, unfortunately, in the case of cancer, obviously their function against the lymphoma cells or cancer mantle cells in this setting is not uh, great. Otherwise, uh, uh, the lymphoma would not be active. So the idea is to uh, help the T cells recognize the enemy, and we do that by uh, taking those T cells out of patient's body, basically a process called uh, apheresis or leukophoresis, where um, in, in a few hours and by having a patient on a machine very similar to a dialysis machine, we get those T cells, and the T cells will be modified in the lab in a process that will take somewhere between two or three weeks. And then the, the T cells that are now, mod now modified, and they're called chimeric antigen receptor T cells or CAR T cells. They're, they will put them back to the, to the patient's body by just a simple infusion after using a few days of chemotherapy, three days of chemotherapy, and what happens here, we, we create an immune storm in patient's body. That's, that's how the immune system does the killing and, and attacks the, the lymphoma cells. And so now these new T cells and modified T cells will go in and find the lymphoma cells and start killing them, which is a good thing, of course. Uh, but by causing that immune storm, patients may also experience some, some side effects that are related to that immune storm and can range from mild symptoms like fever and not feeling well and achiness. And in, in more severe cases, patients may need uh, more intensive support in the hospital setting, in the ICU setting. And there are also some neurological side effects that patients can experience. But these are most of the time temporary and happen in the first couple of weeks after treatment. It, it's an effective treatment. Uh, we do have uh, the FDA-approved uh, CAR-T treatment for mantle cell lymphoma, and in the study that was done and led to the approval, we have seen great efficacy. It works for most of the patients. Uh, a good percentage, around 65%, will achieve a complete remission at the end of uh, at the time of first assessment, which is usually a month after giving the CAR-T. And with relatively short follow-up, uh, of course, these are new treatments, and we'll learn more about the long-term follow-up in, in the upcoming years. But even at one year, it sounds like a good percentage of patients, around 60%, uh, remain to be uh, in remission. So this is, this is really big. And uh, is, is that the right answer for every patient? Obviously not. We do have many options. And as, as I mentioned at the beginning, Really, the key is to have a plan to have these conversations ahead of time, something that we, we in mantle cell lymphoma specifically, we kind of want, want to make sure that we don't wait until there is a lot of active disease and then start thinking about a treatment like CAR-T. We do want to have uh, a relatively reasonable disease control when, when we consider this kind of treatment. So... All I say goes back to the the principle of having a plan, talking about the the next level line of therapy with your physicians, and again thinking about the sequence to be able to take advantage of all these novel therapeutic approaches. And 
it's very important, and we talk about these new approved and standard drugs, but it is critical to really seriously think and consider clinical trials for this disease, especially when we're talking about the relapse setting. Uh, it gives the opportunity of having access to effective treatments before they're even available uh, as a standard treatment. So it's really taking advantage of something that doesn't exist in a way. And, uh, you know, there is, you, you need to kind of be working with a physician who uh, has access to these trials and offers what's, what's best for, for the patient at that uh, situation. But, uh, you know, we still have a lot to do. We are very excited about all these advancements, but, again, we're, we're not done. And the only way that we can advance the field is by really uh, com continuing these clinical trials and trying to bring new drugs and new combinations for, for patients. So I wanted to make sure that I explained the CAR-T uh, therapy in a few minutes, but uh, really, um, and we, we kind of talked about the, talking to the healthcare team about uh, the treatment plans, but also quality of life concerns. I think in case of lymphoma, quality of life and disease control kind of go hand by hand. I mean, it's, it's one of those diseases where... Um, I mean, the, when the disease comes back, and if it's not under control, it will affect the quality of life. So in a way, it always goes back to having the best strategy to attack the disease. Uh, and uh, the last point that uh, I will cover in the next minute is the the use and the utilization of telehealth, especially with the in the past year with the COVID-19 situation, we have been using a lot of telehealth visits, and uh, it's it's important. There's always risk and benefit in not exposing our patients to to uh, the outside world, where they're they're um, at a higher risk of uh, contracting the infection. But I do want to emphasize the importance of making sure that. Uh, Nothing will replace a physical assessment and a clinical assessment if there's any concerns about any new symptoms or, for example, in patients who are on treatment if there is a concern about an enlarging lymph node. Uh, so we do want to keep the balance. It's important to um, to, to think about the, the strategies to decrease the risk of infection contraction, but at the same time, we should not uh, under-treat um, uh, or under uh, or, or kind of forget about the close monitoring and importance of assessment for for cancer, which is the, the active problem for most of the patients. Um, and with that, I think I'm at my 11-minute mark, and um, I'll be happy to uh, answer questions during the Q&A section. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shadman. That was really outstanding and really excellent and um, addressed many concerns of people, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman, and Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman will be addressing current perspectives on new and emerging treatments for mantle cell lymphoma, updates on clinical trials and their significance for mantle cell lymphoma, and guiding guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and making your list of questions. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to be here with you and your team, Dr. Peter Martin and Dr. Meiser Shodman, and all of the attendees uh, with the international uh, attendance is remarkable. Current 
Perspectives on new and emerging treatments for mantle cell lymphoma include the following. As Peter mentioned, the Lymphoma Research Foundation convened the 2021 Mantle Cell Scientific Workshop from April 6th through the 8th of this year. It is the premier meeting on mantle cell lymphoma over the years. Uh, Peter and I were participants in this program. This has been ongoing since 2004, and it's an international group of individuals who are leaders in the field. Uh, so many institutions are represented, and it's extremely high quality. And this updates mantle cell research and clinical trials, so this couldn't be better timing for this particular conference. There are four different types of networks and opportunities to participate in, in, in treatment trials. In the United States, the National Clinical Trials Network, sponsored by our federal government, the European Mantle Cell Network, chaired by Dr. Martin Dreiling from the University Hospital LMU in Munich, has done sentinel work, industry trials, and single institution trials. And I think there are two major perspectives that are emerging at this time, and I thought I didn't quite say it this way and say succinctly in the past, but number one are risk factors, and number two, key overall treatment strategies in previously untreated patients in large randomized trials is at a place where it has never been before, so it's really phenomenal. With regard to risk factors, one principle that's emerging and came out of the European Mantle Cell Network, the paper isn't out yet, but it's out in abstract form, and two-thirds of patients have classical mantle cell lymphoma, which is the way they're starting to think about it, be nodal, extranodal, or leukemic phase, but without risk factors. And 33%, as Peter started to talk about, had risk factors. And, and the, those that emerged out of their data sets included TP53, either defined by mutations or by immunohistochemistry, which is simpler, the a KI67 of greater than 30% in blastoid or pleomorphic morphology. And just one of these had a significant influence decreasing the progression-free survival by half, and if you had more, it was more than that. The major questions on treatment strategies that are under study in different trials with readouts that are pending are around the following questions. Number one, the role of autologous stem cell transplant in the treatment of patients up front, which is standard as previously talked about. Number two, the, ro the role of maintenance rituximab versus a stem cell transplant. Number three, the role of chemotherapy-free approach that includes the BTK inhibitors, rituximab, and venetoclax, and then has talked about CAR T-cell therapy. So what are the updates on the clinical trials and their significance for mantle cell lymphoma? We, over the next couple of years, are going to witness readouts like we saw a, 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 a decade ago in Hodgkin lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma is now going to do this, so it's really exciting. The results of 861 patients recruited in Europe on the triangle study, which is addressing autologous stem cell transplant and maintenance rituximab or maintenance of brutinib in a three-arm study, are pending after initial treatment with RCHOP and RDHAP up front. Secondly, in industry trials, the SHINE trial randomized 765 patients to bendamustine rituximab versus abrutinib and rituximab, and these results are pending. Thirdly, the ENRICH trial looks at chemotherapy arm versus rituximab and abrutinib has been completed, and these results are pending. In the USA, 
E4151 is a trial where patients aged greater than or equal to 18 or less than or equal to 70 years who, after initial treatment that is patient and physician choice and in complete remission, randomizes patients to a peripheral blood stem cell transplant versus maintenance anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, rituximab, or other CD20 antibody types treatment for 18 doses if in complete remission by clonal markers. So now we're following patients uh, with, with clonal uh, genomic markers. If a partial remission, indeterminate, or with a clonal molecular marker, then patients are assigned to a transplant. This trial has now accrued 489 patients. The, patients have, the trial has been ongoing, and it's continued to accrue during the pandemic, which is, and there don't appear to be problematic signals there. The next trial, ECOG 1411, addressed the addition of rituximab and or lenalidomide in consolidation after frontline bendamustine rituximab. The results of these 372 patients have not yet been reported. The sixth trial, the OASIS trial, is randomizing patients to rituximab and ibrutinib versus rituximab, ibrutinib, and venetoclax in older patients. It completed a phase two study and now is going into a randomized phase three. We've talked already about the importance of cytosine arabinoside, and this is important in being added to different trials. Cytosine arabinoside has been added to bendamustine rituximab in the RBAC regimen, some of you might know, and now venetoclax is being added to this backbone. Maziar has talked about abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib trials, and, and we're looking for safety signals there with bleeding and arrhythmia, uh, atrial arrhythmia issues. And there are many limited phase one and two trials going on internationally, so many opportunities. In patients who have relapsed, the, the ZUMA-2 trial, the CAR-T trial, as Maziar has talked about, uh, has really uh, changed what we do and is going to change what we do. And there are going to be new CAR-T cell approaches uh, nationally and internationally and better CAR-T cells. So in summary, this is a, an incredible time uh, which provides remarkable hope for patients uh, with mantle cell lymphoma in the upfront and in, in relapse to refractory setting from number one CAR T cell therapy approaches. And as, per, as of last week, in new randomized clinical trials, the results are pending on a total of 2,487 patients to date and this will get larger as the ECOG trial finishes. And this is unparalleled in in our history in the, in the world of mantle cell lymphoma. Thirdly, new approaches that include venetoclax, and there are other drugs being looked at. And as both of the previous speakers have alluded to, the uh, phenomenal genomic studies on the tumor and the microenvironment are, are telling us things that we never believed uh, nor understood were part of this disease. So what about guidelines to prepare for telehealth and telemedicine appointments? Um, I made these up myself. I didn't go to any other sources. Uh, this is from my own experience. Uh, number one, have your electronic device set up in a comfortable environment uh, where you might also be able to get at your paper records and your questions that you've written down. Uh, appreciate 
along with this that very few of us like looking at ourselves on camera and it, we're all a little uncomfortable. Number two, don't be afraid of making mistakes on whatever device you're using, Zoom or whatever. No one is really an expert, and I have a quote above my desk in my office by Niels Bohr, a very famous physicist, who stated, quote, an expert is a man who has made all of the mistakes which can be made in a very narrow field, unquote. There's a lot of truth in that. Three, it's helpful if you're not used to the technology to have someone with you, such as your spouse or one of your children. It's good to have family present uh, in any event, uh, especially and only if you're comfortable having them understanding your health history. If others are present in the background, though, it's good to introduce them so that their voice can be recognized so we don't mistake it for TV or someone knocking at the door or whatever, and I've experienced all of those things. Number four, understand that some physicians and healthcare providers spend considerable time going over your records. They've not seen you before or not seen you for a while, but others do not, and it's the way it is, and it's the time restraints. And we may have to get back to you at a later date, so all decisions may not get made in that 30 or 60 minutes. Number five, physicians and healthcare providers may be going through your records on the computer while talking with you. It's very common and appropriate, so don't expect remarkable eye contact for the total number of minutes. Lastly, prepare notes and questions ahead of time. You will likely not remember your questions and your comments during the visit without these notes. I've learned this over the last 35 years through the privilege of being involved in patients with phenomenally different backgrounds and cultures, uh, from CEOs from to, to, to people with incredible uh, uh, brilliance in anything that they've done in life, uh, uh, and that they don't remember. So thank you for participation in this conference, and we look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Hopperman. That was really wonderful and just a, just a very um, informative presentation, very comprehensive and outstanding. So I know there will be questions for you definitely during the Q&A, so thank you. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about the services of cancer care. Um, before um, we move on. Um, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education at Cancer Care. And I just want to um, talk a little bit about um, the various free services that you can access, free services and programs you can access from Cancer Care. So many people um, call us on our HOPE line, which is 800-813-4673. I should mention, actually, at the end of today's program, we're all going to get a, um, a Survey Monkey evaluation of the program, but it will also include any um, websites or anything we've given out during the program that we think will be helpful to you um, to have. So you'll also, in addition to that being an evaluation, you're also going to get some additional information as well that you can, um, that will be particularly useful to you. Um, so many people do call us on our helpline. We have about 35 oncology social workers um, who are taking those calls from people who call us um, during business hours, Monday through Friday, um, Eastern Time. And um, so they're there to provide a host of just support and uh, support service to all of anyone who calls that line. In addition, we do, we set up um, recently a new case management system um, where um, if you call one of our, again, one of our social workers will speak with you and they will, um, whatever your need is, if we don't have that, we can't meet that need, we will virtually take you to a place that will be able to help you. We'll stay with you on the phone. We'll just give you a list of places to call. We will actually 
go with you. Um, be sure you're connected. And if it doesn't meet your needs, then we'll find another place. And there are so many different issues that people are confronting right now from uh, from problems around accessing food um, to getting um, their bills paid to getting to so many different needs that people have um, or just questions that they want to have asked their healthcare team, just a array of so many different issues that everyone is confronting. Um, we also do offer both practical uh, financial and copay assistance. And we also have set up some special funds uh, designated for COVID, COVID funds for people who are struggling with these issues as well. So that there, we do have a lot of just very practical and financial services that we offer to people as well. And um, in addition, um, we do, of course, offer online support groups, on, and those are for on many different topics. Some of them are very specific to a type of cancer. Some are for caregivers. Some are for older adults. Some are for younger adults. Um, and we also have a Cancer Care for Kids program to help children um, and families understand, help children understand um, when there's cancer in their family. Um, in addition, we also offer these workshops, and we do offer a number of different publications. So there's a whole lot of things that um, you can access, of course, from contacting Cancer Care. And for those of you internationally we are, or anyone in the United States who just prefers to use our website, you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, we just have a few uh, questions we'd like to ask you at the conclusion of the program, just to get a sense of really um, what 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 you've learned um, during the program. That's really helpful to us again in planning future programs for you. So the first question is: As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the important role of testing in informing treatment choices for mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of treatment choices for newly diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the importance of retesting and determining treatment for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, including CAR T-cell therapy. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions left. Next one is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of emerging treatment approaches for mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19. Again, one highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions, both before the program and now um, at the end of the presentations. And now we're going to move on to our 
questions, Q&A, questions and answers, questions for our experts. And I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to, um, Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And uh, this question, um, so I'm going to, first question is for Dr. Martin. Can I take the COVID-19 vaccine while receiving treatment? The, the short answer to that is uh, yes. Uh, we have um, now, I think, sufficient clinical experience from now uh, hundreds of millions of people suggesting that the COVID-19, uh, specifically the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines, are safe in the general population. And I think enough uh, anecdotal experience amongst uh, cancer patients that those vaccines are also safe. Uh, we also follow the uh, CDC recommendations regarding the other vaccinations, including the the J&J vaccination, which uh, is currently on pause but is likely to be uh, restarted. And if the CDC says that it's safe, I think we'll, we'll accept that. The related question beyond safety, however, is efficacy. How well does the vaccine work? And I think we have to be honest in, in explaining that that's at this point in time an unknown uh, people with uh, cancer and receiving anti-cancer therapy or other sorts of immunosuppressive medication were excluded from the clinical trial. So there are now, as I mentioned, dozens of institutions around the country and around the world. Uh, probably all three of us are involved in this kind of research, uh, uh, Tom and Mazyar and, and myself, collecting this kind of information. I suspect that we will find certain kinds of therapy, including rituximab and, and including the BTK inhibitors, may impair response uh, to the vaccine, at least to some degree, uh, and at least demonstrated in the blood. It will be hard to know to what degree there is some potential benefit, even if there's an impaired response uh, based on a lab test. So in general, we've en encouraged people to get the the vaccine, but we've said once you're vaccinated, I don't think it's appropriate to change your behaviors. It's still appropriate to protect yourself and uh, be prepared to receive uh, booster vaccines potentially at some point in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, a question for Dr. Maziar. Um, what is the effect of COVID-19 vaccines on CAR-T treatment um, or other treatments as well? So I, I, the effect of the treatment on the vaccine or vaccine and treatment, I'll, I'll answer both. So basically, uh, so as it was mentioned, we basically don't know how good the response to the vaccine will be in patients who recently had a CAR-T therapy. And this is something that is being studied actively 
in many centers and uh, studies through the, the kind of national study networks with most of the academic places, there's institutions being involved. So we don't know the answer, but, and I think each institution is following their own guidelines. And I can tell you, for example, here in Seattle, in patients who are not vaccinated and they go through CAR-T therapy, we usually wait until at least three months after their CAR-T therapy for them to receive the vaccine. And really the idea is that with, with the, um, the chemotherapy that I mentioned that we give before CAR-T, with the, with, we call it lymphodepleting chemotherapy, basically what happens, that, that there may not be enough healthy immune system to be able to even respond to the vaccine. And that's why we kind of came up with this um, kind of uh, guideline in our institution. Again, it could be different in different places. So that's the impact of CAR-T therapy on the efficacy of the vaccine. Whether or not the vaccine could impact have, have an impact on the efficacy of CAR-T is a different question, and there's absolutely no data to suggest that, and not necessarily for CAR-T. I mean, this is true for for cancer therapies. We don't have any reason to believe that you know, having a COVID vaccine will negatively impact the, the efficacy of the treatments that we give for, for lymphoma or mantle cell lymphoma. So I hope that answers the question. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, a question for Tom. Um, what comes next if a person has taken a brutinib for five years and it stops working well? It's perhaps a general response. Um, now, this would be uh, dependent upon the age of the patient. It would depend upon um, the uh, amount of disease um, and depend upon whether or not they had a peripheral blood stem cell transplant up front or CAR T cell. So certainly if those you haven't had either of those, that, that's a potential. Uh, Peter has been involved in some publications on uh, on this being a very significant risk factor and uh, uh, not responding. Um, and so I might move this now over to Peter to respond a little further. It is, um, as Tom mentioned, a, a challenge um, occasionally to manage people who have had uh, lymphoma come back during treatment with a BTK inhibitor um, a lot of the same uh, factors that I mentioned earlier, including how quickly are the cells growing and dividing, um, and whether or not there are those TP53 mutations uh, present, those are probably still relevant uh, not only to the response to BTK inhibitors, but also on what we might consider doing after BTK inhibitors. Uh, Somebody that's had a very long response to BTK inhibitor like this uh, five years, I think there's a that's probably a better situation than somebody who's had a very short response to a BTK inhibitor who more than likely has other risk factors that made them a little bit more resistant to treatment. I will say that my bias in general has been to uh, use CAR T cells in the post-BTK inhibitor setting um, but I would admit in, some, in the setting of somebody who's had a very long response, there are probably other different therapies that could be considered. And uh, there are always a, a lot of clinical trials looking at new kinds of drugs that are appropriate to this situation. Uh, at the ASH meeting in 2020, we saw a new BTK inhibitor 
called Loxo 305 that has potential to work in that setting. Another uh, drug called VLS 101 that has potential to work in that setting. Uh, we have used uh, venetoclax, and uh, that can work in the setting of somebody that's had a very uh, good and durable response to BTK inhibitors in some in some cases. But CAR T cells are our general uh, preferred option when they're feasible. Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, so, a question. So for Dr. Um, for I'm sorry for Nasir, um, uh, um the question is I've this is from one of our participants I've heard medical professionals toss around the word cure with CAR T obviously it's very new but what it what is this team's thoughts possibly possibility of it becoming a cure um, if you could address this in a general way um, Nasir. Yeah, I mean, I, I did mention when I was kind of summarizing very briefly the the data that is published with this new CAR T Bruxa cell, and I did mention that the the, the median follow up, the average follow up time for this uh, study specifically, what's published at least, uh, is 12 months, and maybe a little bit longer for for the follow up uh, present. So it's too early to think use the word cure of course i mean cure means that we can get rid of the disease forever and like what we do for some other types of lymphoma at some point maybe at five years or something kind of discharge the patient from the oncology clinic we're not there yet uh, definitely and you know is there a potential is that the hope is that the goal of course uh, there's a lot of work to be done but so the short answer is no, unfortunately, but that's definitely something that the field is working towards, and that's, that's, that is a goal. I mean, the question of how to combine these treatments, how to use them in sequence, and maybe, uh, as it was mentioned, um, you know, next generations of these CAR-T therapies that are stronger, maybe target uh, different targets than what we're targeting right now and adding uh, some other uh, novel uh, approaches to the backbone of immunotherapy, yeah, obviously that's the goal and that, there is a hope for it, but uh, not, not at the moment. We, it's just too early even for the approved CAR-T to, to claim that the long-term responses are durable. We just need to simply follow and see see. How our patients do after after those treatments. Excellent, thank you, thank you. And um, so, um, for Peter, a question: um, Have there been any instances where any vaccine has triggered a relapse in MCL, mental cell lymphoma? I have not heard of any uh, cases like that. And my my first assumption would be, if there were something like that, it would be a coincidence. I admit that it's early times and, and we always have to be open to new new data, but my uh, answer right now would be not that I'm aware of. Okay, excellent. Um, and Carolyn, the, uh, yes. the Lymphoma Research Foundation has just put together a white paper that we there's a, convened about 18 people uh, a month, eight weeks ago or so, and uh, we just re-reviewed all that, the summary of it uh, last week, and um, at this point in time, there isn't evidence that that occurs in lymphoma, is a general thing. 
Excellent. And I think they're also doing, I think they may also be doing a webinar on vaccines itself. Um, I believe that they are, or Leukemia Lymphoma Society is, so that actually for those of you who have further questions about this and just want to get a whole presentation on this topic, that that also might be a nice resource as well. And is the white paper possibly on their website, or do you think? Um, um, I don't think it's posted yet, but there okay. is, I think, and I should know this, I'm sorry, but there is go out on I just recommend to go out on lrf.org and and there is I, there's a planned webinar it's just I don't know if it's posted yet so we'll actually um, we will give you the link and the Lymphoma Research Foundation is a wonderful resource to actually um, uh, get um, in the information that many of you are asking and there's more information about this so that would be a wonderful resource as well thank you um, thank you Tom and um, I think for everybody on the phone with all of these questions, you know, this has only been around for 13 months. And the three of us mm -hmm. probably spend at least two hours of our day every day dealing with this. <laughs> and we're not we're not virologists. <laughs> we, we're, lymph, we're lymphoma doctors, but we've become virologists. It's <laughs> very interesting. It's a very interesting point in terms of how recent it is, and yes, it's an excellent point for us to all be aware of. Thank you. It's a really good, excellent perspective for everyone on the call to have. Um, um, and then uh, someone has asked if this program is being recorded, um, and yes, it um, actually within probably, uh, I would say by probably uh, tomorrow or Monday the latest, this will be available on the Cancer Care website as a um, as a recording, as a um, as a podcast that you can listen to. Um, so just to be aware, and it will be up there for at least a year, um, so that um, that um, that's true for all of our programs. So just to address that question, um, let's see. So this question. Um, from Acer. Um, is there a best recommendation for treatment of P53 mutation when chemotherapy has already been initiated and the cancer seems to be responding well to it, comparing PET scans before induction and after first three cycles? So again, if you could address this, Maser, in a general way. Yeah, so uh, let me just repeat the question. So I, my understanding is that this is a patient with uh, evidence of TP53 mutation and they are in first-line treatment getting chemotherapy, and they're responsive to chemotherapy, and the question is what to do after finishing chemo. And I hope I understood the question right, and yes. if not, please let me know. So th this is a very good question. Uh, you know, I would just, um, in general, um, and um, so in general, the, the, so the standard practice for, for at least us in patients who are eligible for stem cell transplant is to, after the induction chemotherapy, which was discussed, and you know we can talk about different types of it, but in general the the idea is to to kind of move forward with with autologous stem cell transplant, which is basically high dose chemotherapy and you know using patients' own stem cells to kind of support their the 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 blood factory to start making bloods later so that 's the general practice now. We know that in patients who have this mutation, the outcome of stem cell transplant is not as good as patients who don't have the mutation. And, you know, the question is, do, do we even uh, consider the, the, the transplant in these patients or kind of take an approach of being, uh, you know, kind of continuing with other approaches like maintenance therapy? And if, if you have relapsed disease later, then kind of go with one of the more novel approaches like targeted drugs, uh, repeat clinical trial, and now CAR-T therapy. So uh, 
you know, is there a clear answer? I, I can tell you kind of taking care of patients and having these conversations on almost a weekly basis, there is difference in the way uh, um, kind of this is approached by, by different experts. Uh, what I usually do, we discuss the fact that there is data suggesting that the, the outcome could be uh, inferior in patients who have the mutation, so maybe the risk and benefit of a autologous transplant is, is not in favor of having it. Uh, but at, and then kind of having a different approach of closely monitoring patients after finishing chemotherapy and be more proactive and in early signs of disease progression kind of pursue uh, hopefully a clinical trial, if not a novel agent versus chemotherapy, I'm sorry, versus uh, CAR-T therapy in that setting. Uh, I mean, I, I would say is it wrong to, per, to consider autologous transplant? I, I don't think so. And if you look at some of the you know, there are group discussions and papers that are coming out. It could be considered. We, I mean, I I don't know that how how we compare the outcomes of patients who have the mutation and get the transplant or or not. So that's that's a little bit uh, unknown. But I think with the introduction of CAR T therapy and knowing that we have a, another reliable option down the road. I have been favoring uh, not pursuing transplanting these patients and kind of uh, taking the maintenance followed by close monitoring and uh, considering uh, immunotherapy in those patients. But again, I would be actually interested in knowing my, my colleague's opinion in this situation. This is a very common question these, question these days. Um, well, Peter, we, Tom? We've been impressed Tom. with the European data and the outcomes of autologous stem cell transplant uh, being uh, significantly inferior. And so we've been moving away from this, uh, an auto stem cell transplant in this particular uh, scenario. I agree. Yep, nothing to add. And that's with the mutation, though. And so Correct. That, that's a, there are different definitions of TP53 aberrations. Yeah, good point. These, these have really been. Thank you very much. And I have to say, these have been really wonderful questions from our participants, and and of course, wonderful speakers on the call today, Tane. And before we conclude the call, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to provide you a takeaway um, from, you know, from, the, from their perspective for the program today. So I'm going to start with uh, Peter. Um, yeah, I think my my perspective is is really the relevance of having a complete uh, understanding of the lymphoma from from the beginning and, and potentially at, at any time when it seems to change its behavior. Um, in the past, we knew that these were potentially relevant to prognosis, but I think we're starting to learn that these may impact uh, selection of therapy. We have so many different kinds of treatment available now. Um, that we really are making some of these decisions based on our understanding of the biology. So it is important to have a, a good pathologist work up the lymphoma and come up with all of the answers, as, as I mentioned. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Nasir? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the, to me is being ahead of the game, um, working on the general plan uh, and uh, just being proactive and consider clinical trials. So that would be my kind of take-on point. Excellent. And Tom? The 
in addition to what's been said, the change is occurring, it's fast. The results of those 2,487 patients who've been willing to go on clinical trials are going to change the way we do things within the next upcoming years and not a lot of years. And so it's going to be it's going to be great times. There's tremendous understanding with trials and new changes, and they're going to be, what we're doing today. I was thinking back of an old mantle cell uh, participation I had when I was putting this together. What I talked about then and what we talked about now. It's what's happening is just phenomenal. Oh, it's amazing. It's very inspiring to leave for everybody today to realize these that this is happening right, right today and and moving forward. Um, I want to thank you as speakers. It's been a phenomenal program. We do have many more questions in queue, so I do want to relate to that before um, we conclude the program. Uh, but I do want to thank our speakers and uh, participants as well. Um, I do want to remind all of you that, of course, I know there are many more questions that you have. For those of you who asked a question, or for those of you who still have a question to ask, or for those of you who are listening and thought of another question or learned something, please take everything from today and bring it back to your healthcare team and run it past them because they, of course, know the most about you, so that's really important. Um, and also for those of you who um, also want to go to credible sites for getting information, but your healthcare team never sidestepped them, of course, um, we will send you a list of organizations that specialize in lymphoma that you can access those organizations as well that we feel to be, and also, of course, um, uh, the, uh, the National Cancer Institute and other resources as well. So we'll give you those resources that you can contact um, and were mentioned during the program today. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with lymphoma or any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and that in addition to Cancer Care, there are many other organizations out there that can help you and, of course, your healthcare team. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and know that we're all just a, a telephone call or a mouse clip away from you, uh, so please do take advantage of these services and, uh, and particularly your healthcare team as well. Thank you all and have a fine day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day. <laughs>